0: Well, we're going to continue on in our study of the nature of the atonement, part two, on the nature of the atonement. And in our first part, we began this study by viewing the atonement through the comprehensive category of what? What was the comprehensive category are you talking about the concept? Yeah, the, the overarching category. You said that the, the nature of the atonement could be viewed through the overarching lens of Christ's obedience, right? Mm. Okay. Uh, I know you all knew that. You just didn't want to, to be presumptuous and you wanted to let your humility shine forth. Uh, but we looked at the obedience of Christ uh, last Wednesday, and we noted three central truths about the obedience of Christ. Number one, we saw that the Bible teaches that as the incarnate Son of God, Christ assumed the disposition of obedience in His capacity as the Redeemer. So as the incarnate Son of God, He obeyed The will of his Father, he said, I've come not to do my own will, but the will of him that sent me. Uh, And we we explained how that does not imply or denote any form of subordinationism. Uh, And then we, we saw that Christ also obeyed the law of God and kept its precepts and suffered under its penalties. Secondly, we saw that his obedience can be understood in the theological categories of what? What are the two theological categories of Christ's obedience? Active obedience and passive obedience. Right. Active obedience and passive obedience. Uh, which we, we said that active obedience was the obedience of Christ in perfectly fulfilling all of the commands and all of the precepts. So you can remember it this way. Every time the law says, uh, thou shalt do, he did it for you. That's how you should read your Bible, by the way. Every time you see a command in Scripture, you should remember that I've never kept that command perfectly, but Jesus did keep that command perfectly, and on that I rest my salvation. And in his passive obedience, we focus in primarily on the sufferings of Christ as he humiliated himself and uh, underwent the penalties of the law, and of course, what is the the chief or the climactic expression of Christ's passive obedience? The The cross. Exactly. Uh, the, the, the sufferings of Christ are, are exemplified and magnified in the cross. Now, that's not his, the only sufferings he experienced. He, he experienced an anguish of soul throughout his earthly ministry. He experienced the common sufferings that uh, man feels because he existed a, as man. He, he, he dwelt in a man's body. But, of course, uh, the climactic expression of his sufferings was the cross. Thirdly, about his obedience, we learn that Christ, in his humanity, learned obedience through his sufferings that he might be perfected as the Savior. That's what the Bible tells us in the book of Hebrews. So now having surveyed the comprehensive category of obedience as it pertains to the nature of the atonement, we will now look at the atonement through the lens of several specific categories. Okay, So these are specific categories through which we are able to view the atonement. I asked you Uh, Last time I I said, throw out some words that come to mind when you think of the atonement. And you you gave some of those words. Well, I'm going to focus in on four here that John Murray focuses in on in his book, Redemption Accomplished and Applied, uh, as the specific categories of the atonement. And I'm going to tweak the order of those words just a little bit, because the first of those words is the word redemption. And Murray deals with this word last in his chapter on the nature of the atonement. I'm dealing with it first simply because I don't want to exclude it because he does cover it, but we've already looked at this term in several lessons before, so I'm only going to briefly uh, remind you of some things about that word redemption in context of the atonement. Um, remember that Murray said in an earlier chapter, you remember this quote, the language of redemption is the language of purchase. So anytime you see redemption, I want you to think of purchase. In order for Christ to redeem you, he had to buy you. You were enslaved. You were, you were in bondage to what? Sin. Sin. Were you enslaved uh, and in bondage to the devil? Yes. Did, did Christ come and pay the ransom to the devil, though? No. No, he did not. To whom did he pay the ransom? To, to the Father, right? Uh, because it was the wrath of God that was upon us for our sins. And uh, by the way, extra tidbit: that the, the the teaching that Christ came and paid the the atonement or made redemption and made a purchase and gave that payment to the devil is the old false teaching known as the ransom theory of the atonement. The ransom theory of the atonement. Okay, He did not come and uh, pay the devil. In fact. Uh, the devil is one of those who are likewise in bondage and he, he will ultimately spend eternity in the lake of fire. So when you think of redemption, think of a legal and a financial transaction. A payment was made in order to secure the thing purchased and the stipulations of the transaction were agreed on beforehand uh, and the price was already set in the purchase was final Since y'all are doing so good with these questions, let me ask another one. What is the theological term, let me give you a big hint, the theological covenant uh, in which all of these stipulations were forged? What do we call that covenant? Covenant of redemption. Brother, you got to listen to your wife some. She got you there. Yeah, it was the covenant of redemption before the foundations of the world when the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit agreed upon the terms and the stipulations of the atonement. And the covenant of grace, of course, was the execution or the unveiling of that covenant in history. Uh, so when we look at redemption, we see that Christ paid the price of his own life to secure our freedom. And he paid that price to the Father. Well, what from what did he ransom us? Well, we, we mentioned he ransomed us from sin. And that's, that's true. Uh, But it's also true that Christ ransomed us, redeemed us, from the law, from the law of God. Now, not that he ransomed us from any obligations to keep the moral law as a standard of righteousness, as it's so often taught today. You will hear people say, well, Christ freed us from the law. And what they mean by that is we are now under no obligation to obey the moral law of God. We can live however we want. We can do whatever we want. Uh, The Old Testament, we just throw it out the window because Christ has freed us from that. So when we say that He ransomed us from the law, that is emphatically not at all what we mean. Rather, we mean two things. He freed us from the curse of the law. So when the Bible says, you are not under the law but under grace, what it means is, you're not under the penalties of the law. You're not under the penalties of the law. You're under grace. But secondly... He freed us from the law as a covenant of works. The covenant of works, of course, was that covenant that God entered into with Adam. And what were the stipulations? Well, Adam, if you perfectly obey me, you will have life. And if you don't obey me, you will have death. Praise God, we do not keep the law as the basis for our righteousness and our life. Christ has freed us from the law... As a covenant of works. We don't keep it to merit our salvation. And of course he ransomed us from sin. As we already said. From the penalty of sin. From the power of sin. Which Murray calls the triumphal aspect of redemption. And thirdly from the very presence of sin. We have been redeemed from the presence of sin. Now have we experienced redemption from the presence of sin? A little bit. Different. No. No. The ultimate answer is no. Sin is still a reality in our life. It's still a reality in our world. It's still a reality even in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. When will we finally experience the the, the redemption from the very presence of sin? In glory. In glory. Right. Of course, when, uh, when the curse is fully removed, when Christ returns. So, there's a sense then in which you have been redeemed from the Penalty of sin from the curse of the law. You've been redeemed. You are being redeemed from the power of sin as the the grace of sanctification weakens the power of sin in your own life and body. And you will be redeemed from the presence of sin that coming day. So that's the first term we want to consider. But the second term is this term. Sacrifice. Sacrifice. The notion of sacrifice is as old as redemptive history itself. Uh, Genesis 3 and verse 21 was the first sacrifice. God killed an animal and he used its skins to clothe Adam and Eve, which set the pattern for redemption. We see that the atonement, to atone for sin, requires a sacrifice. Genesis 4, Abel then Having learned the lesson that God taught in Genesis 3, Abel killed an animal and God accepted his sacrifice, but Cain brought an offering of the fruit of his hands and God did not accept Abel's offering. Or Cain's offering, excuse me. Genesis 8, after the flood, Noah offered up burnt offerings. Genesis 22, perhaps one of the greatest pictures of of Christ in the book of Genesis, perhaps even in the Old Testament, Abraham was very familiar with the practice of sacrifice, and he was appointed by God to offer Isaac as a burnt offering. And then, of course, as we get into the book of Exodus and the institution of the Levitical system, we see that it contained a variety of sacrifices and burnt offerings. And you cannot read your Old Testament without realizing that the Old Covenant was bloody business. Sacrifices Upon sacrifices. And all of these sacrifices were religious in nature and they were instituted by God as a part of worship. However, all of these sacrifices, millions upon millions of animals that would have been sacrificed, were unable to meet the true needs of those offering them. Uh, Open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. And look in the very first verse of Hebrews 10. The Bible says, For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never, with these same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach perfect. The sacrifices of the Old Testament, they were a shadow of the things to come. They were offered over and over again, year after year, year after year, but they were never able to make those who approach, who come to make the sacrifices perfect. Verse 2, for then would they not have ceased to be offered. For the worshipers, once purified, would have had no more consciousness of sins, right? If, if the sacrifices in the Old Testament were could actually take away sin, then they wouldn't need to be offered over and over again. Verse 3, But in those sacrifices there is a reminder of sin every year. Um, Here's the, the difference, the chief difference, one of the chief differences of the Old Testament sacrifices and the sacrifice of Christ. In the Old Testament, on the Day of Atonement, when the high priest would offer up the scapegoat, it was a reminder to the people that they still had sin. We still have a problem with our sins, and therefore we still have to make these offerings. But when we as Christians look to the cross, it is a reminder, not that we still have a debt of sin, but that our sins have been taken away. See the difference in that. And then in verse 4, of course, For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. Animal sacrifices in the Old Testament were incapable of taking away sins once and for all. They were only able to cover sins for a time. That is why these sacrifices had to be made again and again. Every time an animal was consumed upon the altar, it's as if the altar cried out, more blood, more blood, more blood. But what these Old Testament sacrifices did do Say, well, if they couldn't take away sins, what was the point? What they did do was they pointed towards the one future sacrifice that would accomplish what no other sacrifice could. So an Old Testament saint was not saved through the Old Testament sacrifices. He was saved through faith in what those sacrifices pointed towards. In the same way, you're not saved through baptism in the Lord's Supper. You're saved through faith in the one to whom those sacrifices Sacraments for cords. In order for a sacrifice to effectively make atonement, it must have the efficacy or the power or the ability to remove sin. That's your problem as a lost person: is you have sin that has to be taken away. And the theological term for the removal of sin, the theological term, is a term called. Expiation. Expiation. It means literally to remove. And in theology, it references the removal of sin. And it is expiation, the work of expiation, that our Lord Jesus Christ came to do as the Lamb of God who does what? Who takes away the sin of the world. Literally, that verse means... He is the Lamb of God who expiates the sin of the world. In His death, He did not merely cover our sins for a season. He took them away, and praise God, they will never return. Amen. Uh, notice in Hebrews 10, keep reading there. We read verses 1 through 4, look at verse 5. Therefore, when He came into the world, who's that? Christ? He said, sacrifice an offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you had no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the volume of the book. It is written of me to do your will, O God. Previously saying, Sacrifice and burnt offerings and offerings for sin you did not desire, nor had pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first that He may establish the second. Verse 10, by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. What does it say? Once Once. for all. Once for all. Verses 11 and 12. And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. Could you imagine... The, the, the dilemma, the mindset of a priest in the Old Testament, a believing priest in the Old Testament, who every day was ministering in the temple and was offering animals. And he did it in obedience to the law. He did it to stay the wrath of God. But he was, do, he was doing this and he was saying, I'm going to sacrifice this animal. I'm going, to, I'm going to cut it up and put it on the altar and it's going to be consumed and it's not actually going to take away the sins of anyone. But our great hope lies in the fact that God, Jehovah, will one day send His Messiah that will accomplish what this sacrifice simply cannot accomplish. Every priest ministers daily. Verse 11. But notice verse 12. But this man, after he had offered once sacrifice for sins, forever sat down at the right hand Of God. What does sitting down denote? What 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 does that tell us? An accomplishment. accomplishment. What do you do after a long day of work? Well, if you're like me or most of the men here, you, you come home and you make a beeline for the chair, and you sit down, and you relish in what you have accomplished. There was a lot of furniture in the temple, in the tabernacle of the Old Testament. And we see several chapters in our Old Testament devoted to all of the different items of furniture. But what is one thing, one item of furniture, that's absent? There is no chair. There's No chair. The priest's work was never done. But after Jesus Christ came, by the once offering of himself, he sat down. And he's still sitting down at the right hand of the Father. Because his work as a sacrifice is done. John Murray says of Hebrews 10, verses 5-12, through 12, listen to this, quote, Jesus, therefore, offered himself a sacrifice, and that most particularly under the form or pattern supplied by the sin offering of the Levitical economy. In thus offering himself, he expiated guilt and purged away sin so that we may draw near to God in full assurance of faith and enter into the holiness, holiest by the blood of Jesus, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. The message of Hebrews, the whole book of Hebrews, is that Jesus is better. And here, we see that He's better than the Levitical sacrifices. Not only because He is a better sacrifice who actually makes a full removal of sin, but also because He is a better priest. He is the offering of and he is the offerer. He is the lamb, and he is the priest. And by the once offering of himself, he offered himself. And he took away sin and expiated sin forever. Well, that's the word sacrifice. And you need to think about these words as you're reading your Bibles and as you come upon the work of Christ in, in his office of Redeemer. Uh, and you think of the atonement. <laughs> there's a couple more words. There's, the, there's this word. Propitiation. Propitiation. Um, I like what David Miller says about the word propitiation. If you don't know who David Miller is, you need to look him up. David Miller said, when I was first converted, he was he was preaching about the necessity for Christians to, to study and, and, and make themselves students of theology. And he said, when I was first converted... I did not know what the word propitiation meant. And uh, that is true for most everyone who's converted. That's true for a lot of people who've been converted for a very long time. But he said, I ran across that word in my Bible. And it is a word that's in the Bible. He said, and I I looked up the word, and I found out what it meant. He said, when I found out what it meant, I began to love that word. And I wanted to know how to spell it. And I wanted to know how to use it in a sentence. Because that word is not some curmudgeon theological term for some upper echelon Christian society. That word is a word that God has given in His word to tell me what Jesus has done for my soul. So propitiation, the word propitiation, stands in close relation with sacrifice. Whereas sacrifice deals with the effect that the atonement has in relation to our sins. Propitiation deals with the effect that the atonement has in relation to the wrath of God on account of our sins. So when we talk about sacrifice, we're talking about the removal of sin. But when we talk about propitiation, we're talking about the removal of of God's wrath. So we have the removal of sin in in sacrifice, expiation, and in propitiation we have the removal of God's wrath. Propitiation is expressed in the Old Testament by a Hebrew word that means to cover, to cover. Uh, We've noted that the atonement does not merely cover our sins, but it takes them away. But there is a sense in which the atonement does provide a covering for us. Because God is perfectly holy and righteous, our sin evokes the wrath of God toward us. That that is what a just God must do towards unholy sinners. But when we speak of propitiation, we are talking about the work of Christ in covering our guilt, so that God's wrath is placated or pacified. As our sacrifice, He removes our sin, but as our propitiation, Christ covers us in the eyes of God. So that when God looks at us, not only does He not see our sin, but He sees Christ. So there's both a removal of sin and there's a covering before God. Both are necessary for our salvation, and both are provided in the atonement. Now, why do we speak of a covering of our guilt? Well, because in and of yourself, you still possess sin. You are still a sinner. You are a saint, but you are a sinner. And if God were to look at you, apart from that covering of Christ apart from that that veil over you, which is His righteousness, He would see your sins. And so it's not that He overlooks your sins, or it's not that He turns the other cheek and looks the other way uh, in the presence of your sins. It's that Christ covers your sins. Christ covers your sins. Now, some will misconstrue propitiation as the work of the Son convincing the Father to be loving instead of wrathful. What I mean by that is this. Some people have this idea that God the Father is this this angry, uh, wrathful God that just wants to destroy sinners, and Christ is this loving, merciful God that just wants to save sinners, And so God wants to to pour out His wrath upon you, and He's going to pour it out, and, and Christ goes up to him and says, no, 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 don't do that, don't do that. Be merciful to them. Well, there is a sense in which Christ is our priest, and He does advocate for us. There is a sense in which Christ does plead the merits of His own death before the Father on our behalf. But this idea of the Father and the Son being opposed in the application of redemption is simply not at all what propitiation means. As if the Father wants to mete out judgment against us, but Jesus persuades him to be loving instead. That's not what propitiation is at all. And to prove that to you, turn to 1 John 4, verses 9-11, through 11, where we find this term in our New Testaments. 1 John 4, verses 9-11. through 11. Notice what these verses say. First John four and verse nine. In this, the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world that we might live through him. And this in this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. What are these verses teaching us about the propitiation of Christ? They're teaching us that the propitiation is not the act of the Son turning the Father's wrath into love, but that propitiation is the very provision of God's love for His people. It's not that the Father was wrathful and wanted to destroy you and condemn you, and the Son took it upon Himself to be the propitiation for your sins so that the Father didn't do that. It's that God, yes, is wrathful, and yes, is just, and yes, is holy, but also, simultaneously, has a love for His people, and out of that love, He sent His Son to be the propitiation so that He could satisfy the the demands of His justice and the bequests of His love. Propitiation. See, God is love. What is the supreme object of God's love? Holiness? Himself. Which holiness is a good answer because that's the essence of who He is. If you love holiness, you'll love God. That's another sermon for another day. If you love God, you'll love holiness. The supreme object of His love is Himself. Therefore... He cannot redeem us in a way that violates His own character. So what did He do? He designed the atonement in such a way that His wrath is perfectly satisfied and His love extends to those He desires to save. Propitiation. John Murray says this, God appeases His own holy wrath in the cross of Christ in order that the purpose of His love to lost men may be accomplished in accordance with and to the vindication of all the perfections that constitute His glory. I love that little phrase, all the perfections that constitute His glory. Salvation does not violate any of those perfections. Well, there's one more word that we need to consider as we look at the nature of the atonement. And this last word is the term... I'm going to erase some of this so we can fit it on the board. This last term is the word reconciliation. Reconciliation. Sacrifice or expiation is the removal of our sin. Propitiation is the removal of what? Of God's wrath. Reconciliation is the removal of God's alienation or hostility toward us. The removal of His hostility or His alienation toward us. Sin disrupted the harmonious relationship between God and man. Isaiah 59 in verse 2 says this, Your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden His face from you. So, not only is it true that we have a guilt of sin uh, that that condemns us, and not only is it true uh, that we have a penalty of sin that is due us, and not only is it true that we have the wrath of God toward us, but fundamentally, our Relationship with God is fundamentally severed because of our sin. This alienation is twofold. Listen carefully. There is an unholy hostility from us toward God, but there is a holy hostility from God toward us. Now, why is our hostility towards God unholy, and why is God's hostility towards us holy? Because He's righteous and we're not. Because He's righteous and we're not. to to say it pithy, because we don't have any reason to be hostile towards Him, but He has every reason to be hostile towards us. Well, which one of these hostilities does reconciliation concern itself with? Ours or God's? Well, many see reconciliation as that which turns our enmity towards God into love. They think that reconciliation is that which God does so that our enmity can be removed. As if uh, God is in heaven and uh, He just so desperately wants us all to love Him, so He's going to remove our enmity so that we will love Him. But if you look at reconciliation that way, primarily and chiefly, it focuses the crux of reconciliation upon us. And there so many issues with a theology of salvation that focuses it upon man instead of upon God. It is true that natural man is at enmity with God. He hates God and he has no desire for the things of God. But the natural man has an even bigger problem. Not only is he angry with God, God is angry with him. That's a a bigger problem, by the way. When you're, when you're evangelizing uh, sinners, when you're dealing with lost people uh, who have no desire for the things of God, who don't want to go to church, uh, who don't want to, to hear preaching, who don't want to read the Bible, that's a problem. But you know what the, the bigger problem is for them? And this is what society certainly doesn't like to hear. But the bigger problem for them is that God is even more hostile towards them than they are towards God. God doesn't want to hear their prayers. God doesn't want to even look upon their existence. He's angry with the wicked, the Bible says. And it is this alienation that reconciliation first seeks to remedy. Why? Because we will never be reconciled to a God that is not reconciled to us. His enmity must first be removed before ours can be removed. 1 John 4 and verse 19 says what? We love Him. Why? He because He first loved us. When you came to Christ in saving faith, you did so believing that God loved you and was for you and desired to save you. No one places their faith in a God that they truly believe wants their eternal condemnation. In fact, the very reason you came to Him, you believed and trusted His promise to redeem. In essence, your enmity towards God was removed when you saw that His enmity towards you had already been removed. Now, before I explain this and have you turn to two passages of Scripture, let me throw in this disclaimer. I'm not saying that we should advocate for a gospel that says, well, God loves you, and He's in heaven just waiting on you to love Him back in some sort of seeker-sensitive, emotional, evangelical way that really denies the reality of sin and righteousness and holiness. But there is a sense, and I think we need to be careful about this, especially in some of our circles, uh, in reform circles, where where we magnify the law of God, we magnify the wrath of God, there is a sense in which God does love sinners. And God does love those whom He saves. And it's not wrong for us to tell sinners that. 12, 8. Exactly. He commends His love towards us. And that while uh, while we were yet sinners, God, uh, Christ died for us. So I'm, I'm, I'm certainly not advocating some God loves you, has a wonderful plan for your life. He's just heartbroken in heaven and He's just waiting on you to love Him back. Uh, but I'm also warning against a sort of preaching that just magnifies the wrath of God and never once mentions His love and His, and his grace. Right? Right? Uh, God is angry with the wicked and you need to repent because God hates you and God's going to destroy you and God's going to cast you into hell. Is there some truth in that? Well, there is some truth in that. He will cast those into hell who reject Him and who continue in their sins. But it's also true that because God so loved the world, He, he, he sent His only Son into the world and uh, do I know for sure if God loves you personally or not? Well, I, I know this. I know that Christ loves everyone for whom he died. And if you repent of your sins and you place your faith in Christ, you can rest assured that the love of God is for you. Uh, And so we see that. We see that that reconciliation is primarily geared towards God's hostility towards us. Now let me show you this from a passage that you might not immediately think about in terms of reconciliation. Uh, Does anybody know? the chapter in the Bible where reconciliation is first mentioned? Matthew chapter 5, in the Sermon on the Mount. Turn there, Matthew 5 and verses 23 and 24, and I want to show you the pattern of reconciliation. Matthew 5 and verse 23 and 24, notice what the Bible says. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you. So, you're coming to the altar, and you remember there's a hostility between me and someone else. Verse 24, Leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First... Be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. What I want you to notice is that it was not the one who offended that was commanded to be reconciled, but the one who received the offense. Be reconciled to your brother means what? Remove the alienation that you have toward him because of his offense. So it's the one who, who... who has been offended that is charged with going and securing and pursuing reconciliation. We are commanded to remove our enmity towards those who sin against us before they remove their enmity toward us. So uh, we we get this twisted a lot in in evangelical culture, don't we? When someone someone sins against us, we oftentimes will take the position of, well, I'm not going to have anything to do with them until they come to me and apologize. But what does the Bible teach us to do? Matthew 5 and also Matthew 18. No, Whether they have come to apologize to us or not, what we're supposed to do is, is be the ones who initiate and seek reconciliation. Well, aren't you glad that God did not treat you the way we often treat one another? Amen. Aren't you glad that God didn't say, Well, they've sinned against me, and now we have this hostility between us, and I'm not going to reach out to them and try to effect reconciliation, I'm going to wait on them to come to me, and when they come to me, then I'll talk about reconciliation. Well, if God would have done that, heaven would have been empty. Mm -hmm. We were the ones who sinned and caused this state of alienation, but he was the one who sought reconciliation by first removing his enmity toward us, which thus leads to the removal of our enmity towards him. Now turn to that notable passage, Romans 5. Romans 5. Verses 8 through 11. Romans 5, verses 8 through 11. The Bible says, But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, We were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Well, there's four truths about reconciliation we'll close with from Romans 5. Number one, notice in these verses that reconciliation... Is recur is referred to as an accomplished fact. It is something that God did once and for all. If when we were enemies, we were reconciled. Period. It, it's a completed fact. Well, this cannot then primarily refer to the removal of our enmity towards God. Number one, because all of us come to have our enmity removed at different times. Some of you, ten years ago, you were still very angry with God. You were still hostile towards God. But some of you, ten years ago, had already been a friend of God for several decades, right? So our enmities come to be removed at different times. But Romans 5 speaks of reconciliation as a once-for-all accomplished event. But secondly... The removal of our enmity is not complete. Now I know that we like to sing songs about how much we love Jesus. Oh, how I love Jesus. Oh, how I love Jesus. Well, sometimes I have trouble singing that song. Because though I know in my heart of hearts, yes, indeed, I do love Him, my sins testify that I don't love Him perfectly. That, that all of my enmity towards Him hasn't been removed. Every time you read your Bible and you come across a verse and you say, Ooh, I don't like that. What is that? Well, if you're honest with yourself, you confess that that's some indwelling enmity that I have towards God. That is evidence that I have not fully been reconciled. I have not been fully conformed to His will and to His word. But there was a definitive time when God's hostility, enmity, and alienation toward us was completely and finally removed. And that was when Christ made the atonement on the cross of Calvary. On the cross of Calvary, God's wrath toward His people, God's enmity towards His people, God's uh, desire to condemn was fully removed on the cross. On the cross, God became 100% for you because Jesus fully atoned for your sins. Uh, that, that is a wonderful thing, uh, that, that God does not like you more on your best days or less on your worst days. Uh, Gerhardus Vos, the great Dutch theologian, he has this great quote where he says, I know that God's love for me will never end because it never began. Amen. Hmm. And, and, and there's a sense in which, yes, it's true that God uh, has always been for you, even in eternity past when He elected you in Christ but it was there on the cross that the demonstration of that eternal love was manifest on Calvary. And all of His hostility towards us, all of His anger towards us, was taken away. And then in the fullness of time, when you were born, when you came to a place of repentance and faith, then your hostility was removed towards a God that already, His hostility was removed from you. That's a wonderful truth. Furthermore, John Murray... He shows the absurdity of interpreting verse 10 as the removal of our enmity. Look at Romans 5 and verse 10. Notice it says, For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. Now, put that reconciliation, substitute it with the removal of your enmity. And notice how that verse just makes no sense. If that's what verse 10 was talking about, it would say this, For if when we were enemies, we had our enmity removed. That's not what verse 10 means, is it? No, it means when we were enemies towards God, he ceased from being our enemy. That's what that verse means. So, number one, we see about reconciliation here that reconciliation is is an accomplished fact. Secondly, the words reconciled to God in verse 10 are parallel to the words justified by his blood in verse 9. So we see in verse 10, we see in verse 10, he says. We were reconciled to God, but in verse 9, reconciliation is synonymous with being justified by His blood. Justification is forensic. It does not involve any change in the disposition of the one being justified. But justification is the basis for the beginning of the ongoing work of sanctification, which does make a change in those who are justified. You see where I'm going with this? when we talk about reconciliation. The removal of God's enmity is our justification, if you will, but the removal of our enmity is our sanctification. One leads to the other. They are inseparable, yet they're distinct and they have a logical order. God's enmity towards us must first be removed before our enmity can be removed, but the removal of God's enmity is not the same thing as the removal of our enmity. Well, thirdly, we see That justification or reconciliation is something we receive according to verse 11. Notice it says, not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Well, I ask you, what is the chief gift of the gospel? The chief gift of the gospel is not that our favor towards God has come into being. But the chief gift of the gospel is God's favor toward us. Remember man's greatest problem. Yes, he has the problem that he has no desire for the things of God, but his greater problem is that God has no desire for him. But the gift of the gospel is that now, is now that God has favor towards us. The gospel is not, first and foremost, the good news that we aren't hostile to God anymore. Imagine if we preach the gospel that way. Good news, you're not angry with God anymore. And what would a lost sinner say? Oh, yes, I am. No, the gospel is this. Good news, because of what Christ has done, God does not have to be angry with you anymore. That's the good news of the gospel. Our sin has been removed, His wrath has been propitiated, and our harmonious communion with Him, which we lost in the fall, has been restored. So, Thirdly, reconciliation is something we receive according to verse 11. (coughs) Fourthly, and finally, we received this reconciliation while we were still sinners. Really, that's the definitive proof here for what the primary crux of reconciliation is referring to. Notice it says, If when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. This reconciliation cannot primarily refer to the removal of our hostility, because it's something we received while we were still hostile. Our enmity towards God began to cease only after His alienation toward us was completely removed. You might even say that our reconciliation to God is in actuality our realization that God is already reconciled to us. Well, this is the nature of the atonement, and we study it in order to see more clearly and more fully all that Christ has done for us in His life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. I hope that as you see these words, redemption, sacrifice, propitiation, reconciliation, you see your manifold need before God. It wasn't that you just needed a little help in one area or a little help in another area. You had many problems. You had sin in your life. You had the curse of the law. You had the looming condemnation. You had the wrath of God. You had hostility between you and God. All of these different needs that had to be met in order for you to be saved. And Christ has met those needs. He's redeemed us. He's become a sacrifice for us. He's propitiated the wrath of God toward us. And He's reconciled God to us and us to God. And as we see Christ's provision for our manifold needs, our souls are stirred to praise Him all the more. That is the nature of the atonement. And next time when we meet together to study this, we'll consider the perfection and extent of the atonement.